I'm Rob Trusinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Ilya Shapiro, who is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, thanks, Ilya, for coming on. Good to be on. Uh, so what I wanted to talk to you about is the new Supreme Court ruling, Tims versus Indiana, about uh, uh, civil forfeiture and excessive fines. If you just outline what exactly the ruling was, and we'll talk about some of the deeper issues behind it. Sure. So this was a case that started when Mr. Tims uh, was arrested, prosecuted, ultimately convicted of a relatively small uh, drug crime. Uh, he was sentenced to probation. Uh, and what's interesting, and this is the point that got all the way up to the Supreme Court, um, the police seized his $40,000 Land Rover. Now, the problem with this is that uh, the maximum fine for the offense that he was convicted of is $10,000. So his counsel argued that this was excessive. It violated, in fact, the Eighth Amendment's uh, prohibition on excessive fines. However you define excessive, it seems like four times the statutory maximum. Meets that, uh, meets that condition. Uh, and he won in the lower uh, Indiana courts on this question of whether they can take his expensive truck until it got to the Indiana Supreme Court, which reversed and ruled for the state on the interesting grounds that the excessive fines clause was never actually applied to the states. That is, uh, the way that our jurisprudence has developed, the, the Bill of Rights uh, only applies to the states through the 14th Amendment in a process called incorporation. And now most of the Bill of Rights has been, what lawyers say, incorporated, but this particular provision has not been for whatever reason. And so this got up to the U.S. Supreme Court on the question of uh, whether it indeed uh, is, should be uh, incorporated, and the court ruled unanimously that, that yes, indeed it was. But given the unanimity, unanimity of the ruling, it makes me kind of wonder, you know, we've been talking about civil forfeiture and the abuses of civil forfeiture for a long time. It's sort of a it's certainly a staple of, of the sort of libertarian concerns, but even more broadly, why hasn't this gotten to the courts before now, considering how clear-cut it seems that this is an excessive fine? Well, let's be clear. Uh, when people typically are concerned, or in the last decade or so, about civil forfeiture, it's some property that's seized, confiscated, and the owner is never even charged. There's no compunction that, that the owner is part of the crime in question. In this case, uh, this is a convicted uh, a criminal. Uh, so the question is, you know, it's kind of a hybrid of uh, uh, excessive fines, criminal forfeiture, civil forfeiture. There's a separate proceeding about his truck. So there's some legal complications. But I, I think it's simply that um, uh, whenever civil forfeiture comes up, it's not challenged on the excessive fines clause. It's challenged under due process or it's not challenged at all uh, and, and what have you. Or we hear about uh, uh, problems with, you know, they seize relatively small amounts of property, but ultimately they go to buy a margarita machine for City Hall or, or something like that, or leather jackets for all of the police officers. Um, it's, uh, you know, so there's, there's kind of the PR problem isn't directly aligned with the constitutional issue that was uh, central to this case. Okay. Now, th the excitement I'm seeing on the sort of, you know, constitutionalist uh, commentators here. The excitement I'm seeing is not just about the ruling of the case, but about the uh, uh, opinion written by uh, Justice Gorsuch and, and Justice Thomas, uh, where Gorsuch is joining Thomas in affirming the Privileges and Immunities Clause 
as a basis for this ruling. And that's what's creating a lot of the excitement because that's a different basis than the ruling for the, for the, uh, the, you know, the unanimous ruling. It's a different basis that goes beyond that and is perhaps much more extensive. So let's talk about what does the privileges and immunity clause, immunities clause mean and why is that such an unusual thing to be citing? It's the privileges or immunities clause, uh, not to be confused, of the 14th Amendment, not to be confused with the privileges and immunities clause of Article 4, and there is a relationship there. I'll, I'll get to that in a, in a moment. So, right. Uh, <laughs> let's, aside, call it, let's call it the privileges and or immunities clause. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, when I'm making outlines for notes for speeches or, or, or whatever, I just put P slash I, and it's, it's much simpler. Uh but the uh, so, so setting aside, as you said, the criminal justice reform issue about we will now see constitutional challenges to both criminal and civil and excessive fine sort of cases. So that's very interesting for those who deal with criminal justice. But you're right. That's not my central interest. I'm kind of a, a meat and potato constitutional lawyer rather than a criminal justice guy. And you know, some people say, well, what does it matter? OK, it applies against the states. What does it matter whether it's through the due process clause, privileges or immunities? Who cares? As long as it applies, the result is the same, and it, and it doesn't matter. And here's why this is, has gotten some attention, uh, even beyond the nerdiest reaches of the academic uh, blogosphere, uh, and, and that's because uh, it's actually not controversial among legal scholars that most substantive rights that are protected uh, by the 14th Amendment should be protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause and not the Due Process Clause. Now, bear with me as I go through some of the history here, and it'll show why, why this is important. Um, the original Constitution uh, did not protect, had no protection for uh, if someone was, uh, their rights were violated or they were oppressed by the states. Okay? The, the Bill of Rights applied only to the newly created federal government. Uh, we fought a civil war, yes, about slavery, but after the Civil War, the constitutional amendments, you had the 13th Amendment that, that outlawed slavery, but then there were all sorts of violations going on in the states. Uh, states uh, uh, not allowing freedmen to work, uh, uh, denying them the right to earn an honest, honest living, disarming them. This is why the right to keep and bear arms is an important part of the 14th Amendment. Uh, property rights, contract rights, uh, uh, police ransacking people's homes and, and property without a warrant. All of this, which, which echoes what the Bill of Rights protects, um, but was phrased in a different way by the framers of the post-Civil War, the Reconstruction Amendments. And so the 14th Amendment ratified in 1868, 1868, you can read the congressional debates about what sorts of rights it should be protecting, and the Privileges or Immunities Clause was sort of 19th century speak for what in the 18th century they called natural rights. Right. Uh, and here's, here's, what, here's where this incorporation issue comes in. If the framers of the, of the uh, 14th Amendment had wanted to simply say the Bill of Rights now applies to the states, they could have written exactly that. These, these are not stupid people. Right. They could have written the Bill of Rights now applies to but they didn't. What they said was, in the 14th Amendment, uh, you cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process. That's a due process law, the due process mm -hmm. of law. So that's not purely a procedural uh, uh, protection. If you have a a well-functioning kangaroo court, that's not good, right? right. Um, then you have uh, that the privileges or immunities of citizenship shall not be denied. So and th that's where kind of substantive rights, and as I said, whether it's, uh, you could even talk about uh, serving on juries, that's not purely natural rights, it's also some political and, and, and civic or civil rights. 
Uh, and then the Equal Protection Clause. You have to apply the equal protection of the laws uh, to all uh, persons. Uh, and so that's how it's phrased. And as Akhil Amar at Yale, kind of a, 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 a man of the left, but he, as he's talked about, the 14th Amendment protects both more and less than the Bill of Rights. So uh, there's quite a bit of overlap. It's not like it's some completely different set of constitutional protections. But, for example, if you're doing originalism at the right time, trying to understand, say, the right to keep and bear arms in 1868 had a somewhat different meaning than in 1791 when the original Bill of Rights was passed. Because, again, keep staying with that example, uh, in 1791, they were concerned about government tyranny and people should be armed to resist government tyranny. In 1868, uh, that was still certainly a concern after the Civil War, but uh, uh, kind of private disarmament of people and, and you know, your, your right to self-defense being violated was much more important. And similar things go on with including this Eighth Amendment, what we understand is the protection against cruel and unusual punishment or excessive fines. Now, again, you're still asking, that's fascinating history. What does it matter for the present day if Mr. Tim wins, regardless of how you, how you uh, articulate his right? Well, five years after uh, the 14th Amendment was ratified in the slaughterhouse cases, in 1873, the Supreme Court eviscerated uh, the, the rights protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. It, it basically limited them to certain federally created rights, really obscure things nobody even could name now unless you actually studied, studied mm -hmm. that. Uh, and so states could continue during redemption and beyond to violate people's rights in a host of ways without uh, uh, being a federal remedy. Until about the 1920s, when the First Amendment, uh, you know, protection of freedom of speech, started to be incorporated against the states via the Due Process Clause. And the problem with that, and then other rights over the 20th century started being uh, incorporated as well. And the problem with that is that there is less textual foundation or, or constitutional link between protecting so many substantive rights under due process, which is why we have the most controversial debates, whether it's abortion or gay marriage or all sorts of other uh, unenumerated rights, and now it's, you know, it shouldn't be controversial that the Constitution does protect rights that have not been listed. That's what the Ninth Amendment says, right. that's kind of the concession that you don't have to list out all the rights that, that, that we have. Uh, but effectively, without that strong textual historical tie, um, uh, what unenumerated rights are protected is whatever you can get five votes for the proposition that that, yes, that is a quote-unquote fundamental right. And so uh, a lot of scholars, again, cross ideologically, this is not controversial in the legal academy, uh, although it is among judges, um, uh, if you went through privileges or immunities, you would have a more textually, historically sound way of trying to figure out which rights actually are protected. And to close the loop on this, uh, in McDonald versus Chicago, which is a case from 2010, applying the right to keep and bear arms to the states, uh, uh, Justice Thomas was the only one who used the Privileges Immunities Clause, but he was a necessary fifth vote. That was a five to four decision. Here in Tim's, uh, there are now two justices, uh, Thomas, also Gorsuch. So, you know, we're, we're, we're making progress, those of us who want a more constitutionally sound way of, uh, uh, of protecting our, our rights. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that you know privilege of immunity, privileges or immunities was a way of 
essentially referring to the idea of natural rights and that that's also in the Ninth Amendment. You know, the unenumerated rights is basically a, a friend of mine coined it once. He said it basically means insert political philosophy here. Uh, and, and it didn't mean just insert any politically political philosophy. It meant in the context of the time, insert the Lockean philosophy of natural rights with its whole history from England. So I think that's the most interesting thing is that, you know, uh, that that Ninth Amendment idea and the idea of the tradition of natural rights and the Constitution protecting natural rights more broadly really disappeared for about 100 years or so from from jurisprudence as, a, as an active thing that was used to protect rights, or it was invoked very, very selectively, as you know, in uh, Roe v. Wade, for example, it'd be invoked there, but then not uh, uh, on other issues. So that's what I see as interesting about this is a, a sort of revival. Go ahead. With, with, with some caveats, in the so-called Lochner era, named after the Lochner right. versus New York, 1905, there were protections under the due process clause for certain economic liberties. And Lochner is now thought of as by both the, the left and the right as part of the anti-canon, you know, almost as bad as Dred Scott or Korematsu. Uh, and what, what Lochner did was strike down a New York state um, maximum hours law as applied to bakers. It was uh, ostensibly uh, uh, a, a, a health, uh, public health law, uh, although most of the sort of true public health things about where you can sleep and where you can take animals in the bakery and stuff, those were upheld. Just the maximum hour law was struck down because it violated the freedom of contract between the bakers uh, uh, and, and the owners. And the left now thinks of this as the powerful corporate classes oppressing poor employees. The right thinks, thinks of it as judges imposing their views of good public policy, and we'd rather you know be more restrained. And so nobody really likes it, although in the last 20 years or so, there's been a revival. David Bernstein uh, of uh, Scalia Law School at George Mason University wrote a book called Rehabilitating Lochner, which tells this story about how actually it's the large, unionized, established bakeries that went to uh, uh, Albany, the state legislature, to get protection against smaller, non-unionized immigrant Jewish and Italian bakeries. Uh, and, and it was sort of a, uh, it was had nothing to do with with health or safety or, or anything like that. It was, it was pure protectionism. But, but anyway, well, I, I think there's a um, parallel there to today, what you have with uh, licensing laws. And, you know, I know there's our street Institute is working on licensing reform where you have these excessive licensing requirements placed on, you know, whether you can own or operate a, a hair salon or something like that, which is again, protectionism on the state level. And it, there's really nothing to limit that, nothing to limit the power of the state's to regulate economic activity in that way. That's right. But, but just, just to tie this together, what you were saying, uh, even in that, that brief period when a certain Lockean natural rights uh, conception was, uh, the Constitution was interpreted to protect, that was soon completely discredited, mm. such that indeed it's, uh, you know, you had, as you said, the 100-year interregnum or, or more, uh, where... Um, uh, that sort of uh, that was read out of the Constitution, and, and so uh, you come up with these uh, alternative framings of what kind of rights uh, are protected if if they're not enumerated. Well, yeah. So in, in effect, this is a way to go back to the Lochner era, but through a different and maybe more the idea is through a different and better grounded, more defensible route to go back to the Lochner era idea of 
using natural rights theory to limit the power of the states to regulate people? Well, I mean, let, let me be clear. You don't need to go back to if, if, if slaughterhouse is overturned and we, we revive the privileges or immunities regime, that doesn't automatically uh, return to the Lochner era because Lochner is very controversial. Slaughterhouse is not very controversial. The idea that it was decided incorrectly and we should go to privileges and immunities, that has, as I said, cross-ideological, near-unanimous, scholarly uh, uh, appeal. Lochner is still very much controversial. My position, David Bernstein's position, Randy Barnett's position, is, is in the definite minority. So if you do revive privileges or immunities, in fact, you wouldn't, they're, they're not necessarily connected. You could revive protections oh, for economic liberty under, under substitute process as well. Well, I, I understand uh, but, that, but, but I'm uh, saying is that it, it's a way to achieve something of the same goal or result of the Lochner era, but through a different, uh, a, a better or a different, better, possibly more more respectable or more well-grounded constitutional right. It, it, could, it could be done indeed. Uh, and as Josh Blackwood and I wrote in 2010, we wrote an article while McDonald that uh, uh, the case of applying the Second Amendment to the states while, while that was being, well, that, that was pending at the Supreme Court, uh, we wrote an article called Keeping Pandora's Box Sealed, which was trying to mollify conservatives' concerns that if you go to privileges and immunities, well, then all bets are off and, like, our worst nightmares are, are realized and there's mandatory polygamous marriage in federal post offices and, and things like this, where really the worst that can happen is you have the status quo, where, you know, whatever you can get five votes for, you can recognize whatever right there is. But the upside is, you could have a more textually, uh, constitutionally faithful uh, grounding of, of, of rights protections. Yeah, and I find it interesting that, you know, there's been a, a, a surgence of, uh, uh, of originalism. And, you know, we now have uh, probably, you could probably say five justices at the Supreme Court who would describe themselves as some variation of originalist. But it's interesting that there are, within original, quote-unquote originalism, there are variations and differences. And, you know, Scalia, for example, was highly skeptical even of substantive due process. So in a way, this is like almost an intramural battle between different strains of originalism. It is. Um... But it's curious you mentioned Scalia. Yes, he, he often disparaged substantive due process, but when the rubber hit the road in McDonald, right. uh, he joined, during, during the oral argument, he, he disparaged uh, my friend Alan Gura, who argued it, for bringing up privileges or immunities, uh, because that, that this, he's plumbing for an academic gig or something. Like, excuse me, Justice Scalia, you've been talking about how this is a uh, you know, bad doctrine, and here's your opportunity to try to fix it, and, and you didn't go along with it. Um, it it's interesting what you say about the five uh, Republican appointees. I don't think John Roberts has ever called himself an originalist, although he certainly uses those tools in, in, in various occasions. The thing is, there are two things at issue. There's your interpretive theory, which is originalism or textualism for statutory interpretation. And then there's your judicial mode, how restrained you are, what are these other kind of prudential considerations which come into play. And for Roberts, I think the judicial mode is much more important than the interpretive theory. And so he'd rather just be restrained even if that means fudging, you know, what in his heart of hearts he might think the, uh, you know, the original meaning or the or the statutory text uh, analysis might dictate. Right. Now, you mentioned with regard to the privileges and or immunities clause that that the slaughterhouse cases, and I want to go back just to briefly talk about that. Of what was the role of the slaughterhouse cases in bringing that up? Because I as I understand, the slaughterhouse cases uh, ruled against privileges or immunities, but the arguments in the dissent uh, were very influential and were considered to have sort of won out over the over the long term. 
Yeah, so this is five years after the 14th Amendment was uh, enacted. The city of New Orleans granted a monopoly to a particular slaughterhouse. They had problems with, you know, in the early industrial era with uh, uh, disease spreading through as, 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 cities, as, as populations urbanized and how do you do food processing and all that, uh, you know, water sources and animal carcasses, you know, all, all that age. So anyway, they decided to centralize um, the, all the butchering and, and slaughtering uh, in the city. Uh, but you don't necessarily need a monopoly to centralize that sort of thing, you just own it or whatever. Uh, but they gave a monopoly to a particular company. The other com- the competitors sued, saying this violates our economic liberties. Why yeah. can't we be involved in this business? I mean, fine, tell us that we have to be downstream or you know whatever. But uh, you know why? Why is only our competitor getting monopoly? And they lost um, uh, because uh, the court ruled privileges or immunities only protects. Certain, not natural rights, but certain, you know, an emphasis on the privileges, the state created, federal created privileges. Um, they gave examples of uh, uh, visiting sub-treasuries in, uh, <laughs> in Washington. Oh, that's and a really important certain, thing to protect, yeah. Protections on the high seas from the merchant marine, things like this. Uh, anyway, um, but the dissent, <laughs> there was a five-four decision, the, the, the dissent uh, did play into what eventually became the Lochner era, so kind of protecting through substitute due process. Kevin Newsom, who is now a judge on the 11th Circuit uh, in, in Birmingham, Alabama, has written a very interesting law review article saying, you know, the slaughterhouse is really more narrow than it's subsequently been interpreted, and it's later courts that aired in reading slaughterhouse as eviscerating the privileges or immunities clause, mm-hmm. which is an interesting point, but regardless, that is, you know, the line that the jurisprudence uh, uh, did go and, and, and to this day remains. Now, the question I that, that I find interesting about this, because, you know, with, with you can say Roberts is an originalist in his heart, but uh, uh, doesn't like to follow through on it and is very cautious in acting on it. But it is true that, uh, my, I guess, that, that originalism is a greater influence. And, and I guess the question I have is, is originalism winning in some to some extent? Uh, to get the example I got is, is somebody saying to me that, uh, you know, that right now what elite, graduates from elite law schools are underprepared to make arguments before the Supreme Court because they're not taught originalism. You know, and if you have five justices who respond to originalist arguments and you can't make those arguments or respond to those arguments, you know, you're not going to be prepared to argue before the Supreme Court now. So in a way, that would mean that law schools that are maybe hostile to originalism would then have to begin at least teaching it so people know what it is. I mean, there's a there's a certain momentum behind it. It's uh, it's it's better than it used to be, believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, in the uh, oh, I remember the, what it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> in the 60s and 70s, uh, the uh, when you get constitutional law textbooks, case books, the Constitution wouldn't even be in them. Uh, and then eventually it made it into Appendix H and Appendix A, and now in most case books it's toward the front. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's an improvement. Um, uh, textualism has definitely won out. The idea that you actually read the statutes and try to figure it out before you apply other interpretive techniques, like whether you use legislative history or not, whether you how you use context or other canons of construction mm-hmm. and whatnot, uh, but again, it, it used to be that uh, uh, the plain meaning of the text could sometimes be used to support what you think the purpose of the statute is, right? <laughs> uh, that, that's been flipped. So there's been definitely been movement uh, in textualism. In fact, Justice Kagan likes to say we're all textualists now. Right. Uh, originalism, too. You look at 
a decade ago, the Heller case, which found that the Second Amendment protects an individual right, both sides, the majority, Scalia's majority and Justice Stevens' dissent, were arguing, trying to understand the history, the public meaning of the right at the time of the framing. That's that's good. And 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 uh, so you know there, there are um, you know frankly the, the the better law schools tend to have even professors, even though there's not many originalist professors or conservative or libertarian professors, the, the, the professors do generally grudgingly sometimes uh, you know, talk about these opinions, and certainly Scalia's dissents uh, fill the casebooks uh, these days, in part because they're so evocative and readable and, uh, and, and what have you. And, and now the kind of the second generation of uh, legal elites, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, they're 20, 20 to 30 years younger than, uh, than, than Scalia, Thomas, um, they brought, they've been brought up in a, in a different generation where, uh, you know, Bork was already writing, Scalia was already writing, and uh, theories of uh, engagement rather than restraint uh, have been kind of active in the academic sphere in the last 20 years. Now, engagement so, versus restraint, uh, I think, is an important issue because, you know, the I remember the era of judicial restraint as being the big issue, <clears throat> which meant, you know, it was a sort of a reaction against the the leftward lean of the court where they would be inventing things out of whole cloth. Uh, and the idea is that judges should be restrained, but it also ended up restraining, uh, uh, restraining the, the uh, enforcement of the constitution itself, because, and this is sort of almost like, like Tom, uh, like uh, Justice Roberts saying, well, I might agree with you, but uh, on, on the originalist argument, but I'm going to be very cautious in imposing it. Whereas engagement is the idea that judges should be engaged in, in, in in you know shouldn't shouldn't be making things up on a whole cloth, but they should be engaged in using the constitution as a basis for overturning laws. Yeah, I think this is what philosophers call a category error. So in the uh, the excesses or the activism of the '60s and '70s, the the Warren Court conservatives, rather than saying no, your interpretive theory is ridiculous and wrong, and here's the right way to do it, instead they said. Uh, why are you unelected judges striking down these duly enacted laws, either either state or federal laws? Uh, and um, that's uh, yeah, that it's, it's that uh, ironically, conservatives in being in urging such restraint, uh, or as Alexander Bickel put it, who was uh, Robert Bork's professor and then colleague at Yale Law School, uh, uh, engaging in the passive virtues of trying not to decide when at all possible and deferring <laughs> to the political branches. Uh, uh, ironically, they were making common cause with the progressive left uh, uh, earlier in the century. You kind of have this unholy alliance uh, of, of uh, judicial pacifists, if you will, right. uh, rather than activists. Um, uh, and, oh, yeah. and the, the unelected judges thing is really just a, almost a rehash of FDR's nine old men uh, uh, claim. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much more healthy to say, OK, what's your theory? Here's mine. Let's figure out who's right. Let you know, and ultimately let the voters pick the uh, presidents or the governors that are going to be appointed appointing judges with these theories rather than those. Right. Right. So what I, I find interesting about this is we'd, whether we're talking about Slaughterhouse or Lochner, there is like this sort of this sort of overhanging or in the background there's this sort of what I think of as pre-New Deal jurisprudence because what happened you know in the New Deal where you had the court packing scheme and FDR railing against nine old men. That was the point at which the Lochner era was kind of dismantled and the Commerce Clause became the sort of all-purpose excuse for whatever it is you wanted to do. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know the, the 
the clause that says the, the, the Congress can regulate commerce between the states, which was supposed to be a limitation on the states uh, interfering with interstate commerce, but then became this sort of uh, uh, license that whatever, whatever anybody does in the commercial realm uh, can be interpreted as affecting interstate commerce and therefore giving Congress carte blanche to do whatever they like. Uh, even restraining from interstate commerce uh, uh, was considered to be something that affects interstate commerce. So even not buying something like not buying health insurance could be regulated under, under the interstate commerce clause. So that became you know, the, the locker protections for economic rights. Now, I, I think the left really liked the commerce clause because it, the old fashioned liberals liked it because it gave them a way of saying there's nothing to restrain Congress or the, or the government in the realm of commerce and economics, but we can still talk about civil rights and we can still talk about free speech. That was the old liberal, uh, 20, mid 20th century liberal combination there. But in doing so, they, they got rid of the Slaughterhouse and Lochner jurisprudence, the older jurisprudence that applied the constitution to, econo to economics and to commerce and to economic rights. And I think that's the interesting thing that's, that's going on here is that all that jurisprudence is hanging out there waiting to be revived to a greater extent and bring economic freedom back up, hopefully on a par with uh, uh, civil rights or free speech and those kinds of freedoms uh, in, in terms of the protection of the, of the Supreme Court. Yeah, that, that raises the issue of uh, 1937 case, Caroline Products and its infamous footnote four, which bifurcated our rights. Uh, right. Some rights are more equal than others. Those that are enumerated, uh, although apparently not the Second Amendment, the way that courts have been treating them in the last decade, and those that, uh, uh, that those that are political rights that ensure the integrity of the political process, voting rights and, and others, uh, and uh, laws that affect discrete and insular minorities, those are suspect. Uh, but all other rights are in effect uh, are in effect secondary. And what you say about the Commerce Clause raises kind of what I like to call the the, the two sides of the same coin theory of constitutional interpretation. Or the ninth and tenth, or I like to say also that the ninth and tenth amendment are the constitution in a microcosm. That is, powers are enumerated, listed, and therefore finite. Uh, rights are infinite because we couldn't right. possibly list all of the liberties that we have. Um, and so, just like uh, if we didn't have a bill of rights, it wouldn't mean that we wouldn't have any rights. Uh, this kind of a belt and suspenders effect. And so, you know the the. It, the federal government isn't given powers to invade our rights uh, uh, in the first place. And so the, 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 there really isn't overlap between powers that Congress has and uh, there's no daylight between powers that Congress has and then the rights that, 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 that we have. Um, and you talked about the Commerce Clause. There's, there's other important clauses that got warped at the same time. For example, the General Welfare Clause at the beginning of Article 1, Section 8, um, which is people... Some people might know that it lists the 17 powers that are given to Congress, one of which is the power to regulate commerce. Other powers include, include raising an army, coining money, this sort of thing. Uh, but all of that, before you get to that list, uh, it says that in order to preserve the common defense and general welfare, here are the following powers. General welfare is a limitation. It's not a further grant of power that you can do whatever... <laughs> Congress thinks is for the general welfare, meaning whatever a majority of Congress thinks is a good idea. 
I remember um, Nancy Pelosi citing the general welfare clause. Like, we can do right. whatever whatever we think is the general welfare we can do, in which case, why have a constitution at all? Right, right. If it's just, if you have a majority in Congress, well, by definition, that's for the general welfare. No, it was meant to say that Congress could only act for the nation as a whole, not for a regional or parochial or particular uh, right. interest, but it's been uh, uh, flipped on its head. Right. Well, so I guess the question is, you know, we have, you know, five justices who are at least sympathetic to these arguments. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, we have, you have a nine justice majority here where it's something that I think is much more clear cut. If we have a sixth conservative justice on the court and, you know, this is speculative and, and we, you know, it may or may not happen. If we had a sixth, would it be sort of Katie bar the door or, or would Pandora's box be open to some extent? Uh, on 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 the on the libertarianish side of uh, the, of of suddenly producing a much greater revival of the constitution as a protection for these unenumerated unenumerated rights, including the unenumerated rights that the right does, that the left doesn't like. Well, the uh, uh, the Supreme Court uh, always moves slowly mm-hmm. and incrementally. Typically, it's it's rare to have just overturning some very old precedent and going in a completely uh, a different direction. Uh, and also, it never gets too far ahead or behind of public opinion. Mm-hmm. So uh, as occupational licensing, civil forfeiture continue to be unpopular, I think we could have rulings, um, uh, uh, you know, scaling that back. Uh, in terms of other things, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it... Uh, it also depends on what kind of conservative or originalist is it. You know, so again, uh, Kavanaugh has some Robertsian tendencies. He also has some Scalian tendencies. So how will he act at the margins in some of these cases? Or that that sixth justice, if you know the the kind of the the, the conventional wisdom, it's the Ginsburg seat, uh, and Amy Coney Barrett is the odds-on favorite. Um, she how, you know she has criticized Randy Barnett uh, for certain things. But she also uh, is very favorable to both Scalia and Thomas. So, uh, you know, regardless of how strong an originalist she is, how quickly will she want to move on some of these cases? I, you know, or if it's not her, uh, you know, whoever else comes comes later. Or will they effectively move in a direction that I might like substantively without changing the doctrine, sort of changing it sub rosa, which is suboptimal because I don't like when courts do things kind of implicitly rather than. Right. Uh, explaining exactly and, and, and correcting doctrine and, and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that would be, uh, you know, it's been quite a while since we've had a clear, you know, six to three majority of any kind for any given area of law. And, and even now, obviously, with, with Roberts as the median vote, that's a different court than Anthony Kennedy being the median vote. Uh, but if there is that six justice, if, you know, if Kavanaugh becomes the median vote, that's a that's an altogether different court. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're going to have to see how that how that works out. But at least I think it's it's most interesting that this sort of thing that we can have a discussion about the privileges or immunities clause and the the protection of natural rights uh, uh, and the recognition of natural rights as a protection of the Constitution. I can remember when we weren't having that discussion at all, when that would sort of be considered a fantasy that that would be relevant to current Supreme Court rulings. So I think uh, that's sort of the good news of this, that we're even having the discussion. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on to explain this from a, a uh, from an expert standpoint. You know, it's it's taken uh, decades to get to where we are from the Supreme Court's deviations in the late 30s and early 40s. It'll take 
decades to, to fix it all. So right. uh, don't look for, for, for something to happen overnight. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. If you enjoyed this discussion, uh, you can follow us on YouTube. You can follow my podcast. Uh, you can also find further more, more ideas and analysis at the Trzinski Letter, www.trzinskiletter.com. You can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. This is Salon of the Refused. I'm Rob Trzinski. Thank you for listening.